Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fuel Your Fan of Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. Batman. Speaking of which, Batman comes out in like a week and a half as of yeah, recording I think it's, this. Uh, the first, uh, first week of March, if I'm not mistaken. And anyone listening to this, it'll probably be after it comes out. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I enjoyed it. We will see. But uh, lots of nerd movies and things coming out on the horizon. It's a really exciting time to be a nerd. I say that a lot, but I mean, I guess I'm just super excited to be a nerd. I don't know. Yeah, and as we as we record this, um, uh, the Tom Holland Uncharted movie has just opened uh, this weekend. And uh, it's not getting great reviews. I think you mentioned before we hit the mics here that it's somewhere in the mid forty range on Rotten Tomatoes, but uh, yeah, it seems to be like making 46. money. Yeah, it's making money. Um, you know, Tom Holland obviously has a whole lot of career goodwill uh, spilling over from the massive success of Spider-Man: No Way Home, which uh, just a couple of months ago over Christmas, and uh, now it's uh, mid-February, so um, that, that's that's exciting. Um, I want to see video game movies do well. We, we, we actually talked at length Absolutely. before about how most video game movies are dog shit. But uh, I, I really want to... Even though this one was in development hell for a very long time and went through several directors and several stars, and Nathan Fillion tried real hard to get that role of Nathan Drake. He made that, uh, that self-produced short... That was actually yeah. really, really good. It was really good. But they decided to go with more of an origin story, so they cast a younger actor. And this thing's been in development hell for so long that originally they cast Mark Wahlberg as uh, as Nathan Drake. Come on, come on! Feel it, feel it! Feel the vibration! Um, but this thing dragged <laughs> out so long that he's playing Sully in this movie. So that's interesting. But... Um, it looks good. I've seen the trailer a bunch because I've been at the theater a bunch the last couple of months, and it looks like this one might actually break the pattern. Not only uh, are the stars very charismatic, very high Q scores, but um, they also uh, they also seem to have honored the source material. I, I remember thinking the first time I saw this trailer that it actually the production design of it looks very similar to the series of games, um, especially the last one, Thief's End. Uh, well, not the last one. The last one was Lost Legacy, but nonetheless, um, the last one that had Nathan and his brother Sam in it, this right. one uh, really looks like that game quite a bit. So it, it seems like they've done their homework, and uh, I'm kind of excited to see it. I'll probably go later today. And I'm just delving into uh, an Uncharted game, speaking of Uncharted, that I've never really played before. I've had it forever. Uh, I bought it when it first came out on the Vita, um, which is the Uncharted game for the Vita. Golden Compass, I think is what it's called, or something like that. Yeah, that sounds And uh, I just picked up a new Vita from Japan, one of the Japanese exclusive uh, colors. I bought that from the same guy I bought that uh, Hyrule Edition Japanese uh, 3DS from. Really cool, really good looking system, so I figured that was a good excuse to pop in the Uncharted game I never played and, and start working my way through it. So that's kind of fun, and as I sit and have... A little bit of time for video games. I've been poking around at a few of them. I popped in that uh, Pokemon Arceus uh, video game. Uh, we bought it for my daughter, and uh, she's a huge Pokemon fan. All of like the last like six months, and so she's going nuts for it. And so I put it in, and I told I told my bandmates this. I told you this. I said this is my first ever Pokemon video game out of all of them. I've never played any of them. And I think the Pokemon train just kind of passed me by. I think I just never really got into that mode. I know yeah, what they I are. Too. 
I know mm-hmm. about them. I don't know. I'm not steeped in the lore or anything like that, but it's not bad. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you can be alive and a nerd and not at least have some familiarity with the Pokemon universe. But yeah, I never really played any of the games either. I, I, I got some of the handheld systems years ago when some of the earlier Pokemon games were kind of tearing those things up. But uh, yeah, I just I, I kind of missed the boat on the Pokemon thing. Yeah. It is what it is, and and my bandmates are all making fun of me because I didn't start in Generation 1. It's like, look, I'm going to play what I have available to me, and, uh, you know, it's it's okay. It's it's interesting. From what I've seen, the differences between that and the uh, original games are mostly just graphical, so... Well, and it's then of course uh, the 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 tagline of the series of you have to catch them all. You not. I, I'm, I'm being too grammatically correct. You gotta catch them all. Uh, of course, <laughs> every edition of the game they came out with, they uh, they they expand the the Pokemon roster beyond the original. I was 150 or something. 151 Pokemon. Later. So now there are thousands of them, and uh, whoever keeps coming up with those little things is just kind of a genius. I know it's somebody sitting in an office at Nintendo someplace. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea of, well, you got to catch them all, and you're not really a Pokemon fan if you don't pick up every edition of the game and get out there and catch every single one of those little bastards. So, it seems I mean, like you and your for, completionist for thing on, uh, on like Assassin's Creed and the Sandbox games, that seems yeah. like it's generated right towards your sensibilities. I mean, and that's probably a good thing that I've never played those games before, because I would definitely take the tagline as a, as a direct order to get out there and catch every <laughs> single fucking Pokemon. <laughs> And I know some of them are harder to find than others, and some of them are randomized, so uh, I don't Jim, know much Jim, what's wrong it, with you? What's wrong with you? I've got to catch them all. You haven't slept in three days. You haven't eaten in a week, and you haven't been to work since Thursday. I know, but i got to catch them all. <laughs> How you been doing, man? You know, I'm good. I'm a little scratchy today because my band had our first show uh, ever last night. Um, awesome. At this bar in, in, in uh, near me, and uh, it went... Not bumpless, but it was uh, overall, I think, better than I expected for an initial outing, and we had a surprisingly good crowd. I mean, I know that you know this, you know, just as well as anybody does who's, who's ever been in a band or is currently in a band, but I haven't uh, been in a band regularly um, for about, oh gosh, a band that gigged out regularly. I think I left my last regularly gigging band, and I want to say 2004, so it's been and almost Back then you were years. playing. you were playing drums back then. Yeah, I was playing drums back then, and I've been in a couple of bands since that kind of had some false starts. I think the last time I played on stage with a band um, was in 2018. I, I was in a band in uh, Richmond, Virginia when I lived there, and um, <clears throat> we had uh, about six or eight months of rehearsals, booked a show, and I played the show, and then the job I was out there doing, uh, they extended my contract, and then a week later they pulled my contract, so I was not able to stay in the area. And so we got one gig out of that band. They actually rebranded, and they're doing a similar set list and got some new personnel in there, and they're still cranking along, and good for them. They're awesome. Um, But, yeah, I haven't actually been in a band that played out regularly in almost, uh, it's been 18 years. So this was uh, kind of a new thing for me because I moved from behind the drum set out front, and now I'm singing um, Mm. in the band that I'm in now. And it's a cover band. You're doing original stuff with another sentiment, but my band, Rush Bucket, is doing... Uh, 90s grunge and alternative covers, and that's a pretty wide swing of vocal range. I'm doing everything from, 
you know, really high up there stuff like Man in the Box by Alice in Chains or uh, No Rain by uh, Blind Melon. I love and that And then song. moving all the way down to the other end of the spectrum, um, doing stuff by Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder, very famously a baritone. Um, but some of that is pretty, uh, you know, uh, Seven Mary Three, we do Cumbersome, so some of it's kind of scratchy, some of it's kind of low, some of, it, so, some of it's uh, pretty soaring, and some of it's really high up there, so I'm, it's, it's a workout, and uh, I'm feeling it today. You know, I used to play drums for about four hours at a stretch, and some of those gigs, you know, you'd wake up in the morning on Friday, you'd go to work all day, then go to the rehearsal space, and I'd tear down my drums, put the drums in the cases, put the cases in the car, drive to the gig, unload the car, take the drums out of the cases, set the drums up, play the drums for four hours, tear the drums down, put them back in the cases, haul them back into the car, go back to the rehearsal space, bring the cases in, take the drums out of the cases, set the drums up, and then I wouldn't get home until the the light was starting to break over the horizon, so that was kind of a pain in the ass. Um, but uh, this was different. This, I didn't really have that much gear to haul. I only had to really, really bring a, a couple of guitars, because I'm playing rhythm guitar and a couple of tracks, and... Um, and sing, but, and it was actually about a three hour show as opposed to we used to do four hours, but it just kicked my ass. And I think, uh, <laughs> that has less to do with the physical aspect of it. Cause before I was doing working out all four limbs on a drum kit and I'd play for about four hours, but this time I was just standing in front playing a little bit of guitar and singing. And I'm just so sore today. And I thought to myself, man, playing drums didn't used to kick my ass this hard. Then I had to think again. I'm like, but that was 20 fucking years ago. You were in <laughs> your twenties at the time. So I just have to kind of be realistic about my expectations and understand that even just being out in front and, uh, and doing some singing is going to be physically taxing in a way that it didn't used to be back when I was literally a kid. But it was fun. We had a really good time. We had a really good crowd. Um, I, I seem to remember years and years ago that um, we never used to do really well with, uh, with crowds. Um, getting people to come out to a show was a real challenge. But we had about 50 people, I think, at the bar last night, and they seemed really responsive. They they were attentive and listening, and some of them had come out specifically to hear us because they were friends and family and loved ones, but um, a lot of folks were just kind of incidentally there because it was a bar in the Milwaukee area on a Saturday night, <laughs> and they really seemed to enjoy us. And the, the bar management and the bartenders and the, all the staff, uh, the bouncer even came up and told us that he really liked our set. So that was that was really gratifying. And, um, yeah. they want us back. So, uh, that's high that's praise a, a good considering start. the amount of people that they go through every day. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And this, this bar books live music every weekend. So it was a nice thing to hear. And, uh, even though it wasn't a perfect show, we definitely had some bumps, some things that, uh, we'd worked out in rehearsal that still kind of, you know, cropped up and came back to haunt us again, even though we we've sort of smoothed over the rough edges, they, they kind of came back here and there, but nonetheless, I mean, it was, uh, for a first outing, I don't think I've ever had a better first show by a band or a bigger first show by a band I've been in. So it's uh, promising, it's encouraging, and I'm looking forward to the next one. How about you? That's, How you doing? That's great. Now, I was thinking about, uh, we did a show once. Uh, I, I I fronted a tribute to Tool uh, for about uh, almost five years at one point. We called 46 and 2. And uh, we got up, uh, we did a, uh, there was a show literally like the day before or two days before a show that tool was playing up here and so we were the main attraction at this show before the show where we were giving out tickets to the actual sold out show yeah and so we were the big draw we were the opener or we were the headliner and all that and uh we had been working on uh i remember specifically we had worked on vicarious the song vicarious
That's a tough that one. one. It is. Uh-huh. And we'd never performed that one live before. And we worked on it for like a couple of months previous. I mean, I knew it inside and out, left, right, upside down, and down, sideways. And I blanked. They started playing it and oh, got to the lyric part, and I just kind of like. All the you words. You can hear the crickets chirping. Yeah. Yeah. So I oh, looked man. at the guys, and I'm like, hang on, hang on a second, hang on a second. We're working out some bugs here. Hang on a second. That's on me. Start again. Let's go again. And then we got up and I rocked it. But, but that, <laughs> the crickets chirping moment for me was just right there. It's like, oh, God, how did I forget this? It's just nerves. It's all nerves. I will, I will never have anything but admiration for anybody who tries to play Tool music, especially exclusively Tool music if you're doing tribute stuff. The band that I was in a couple of years ago, and it's funny, the bass player in the band that I'm in now... Um, he was a bass player in a band that I played drums in a couple of years ago, and then I got a job offer out of town. It was the only job offer I had. I hadn't worked in a couple of months, and I had to leave to go take the job. Um, but when I came back into town, he asked me to join this band on vocals, which was very flattering uh, for a couple of reasons. First, because I don't consider myself a vocalist, even though I, I'm singing in a band now. But also because, um, you know, I kind of left him in the lurch before when I had to skip out of the previous project to go take this job out of town. So I was very happy that he asked me to be part of this. Nice. But we did um, we did two Tool songs in that band, and I was playing drums. We did Sober and Stinkfest. I was just going to say Sober's got to be one. Yeah, because I mean, you know, if you're playing a, if you're in a Tool tribute band, you're going to be doing some some deeper cuts because that's uh, they've got quite the catalog. But if you're trying to play the hits, you want to do a couple of singles, I guess. Oh yeah. Um, and both of those songs are. Oh no, excuse me. It wasn't Sober and Stinkfest. It was Prison Sex and Stinkfest. And uh, I do both Prison of those Sex are, uh... at a karaoke bar, and they look at me because yeah. the lyrics to Prison Sex are just. They're fucking heinous. They're pretty brutal. They're pretty brutal. I yeah, mean, I mean, it's not a conceptual not... title. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's a literal title. So uh, it's a pretty brutal song. Um, but yeah, had, we did the those The bartender two. told me to do that one, and uh, I don't think anyone else in the bar was prepared for it. He was he was clapping and loving it and, and just cheering his head off, but the rest of the bar was looking at me like, did he just say, shit blood and come on my hands? What? Shit blood. What? Yeah, yeah, he did. Because maybe <laughs> did. But yeah, we did those songs, and they're, they're very challenging. Tool is very uh, progressive. It's prog metal. It's very mathy. You got to count your ass off, and it just was oh, really. Yeah. And Stinkfist, apparently, you know, particularly, I mean, it's a great song. And if anybody listening to this has, has heard the song, but really not gone through and listened to the actual instrumentation on it, do me a favor the next time you hear the song and listen to the drums. That part is all over the map, and it took me months to get it down. And then that band never even got a chance to play out because I had to skip town, and I felt really guilty about that because we worked really hard and never even got to play a gig. But I got a second chance at it this time. The guy, uh, Chris, who's our bass player in Rust Bucket, uh, invited me back, and uh, we've got a gig under our belts already, and, uh, you know, onward and upward towards onward the future, upward, I guess. Yeah. To infinity and beyond! That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, me, I'm doing okay. Uh, it's We had Good. pretty much a lazy yesterday except for some errands. And uh, like I said, I dug into that new Pokemon game, which I'm not really probably going to spend a whole lot of time on it. It's still not my thing, not my cup of tea. My daughter just loves watching it. She sat there with me for a while with her Pokedex. And every time I came across a Pokemon, she'd flip through the Pokedex and talk about that Pokemon and their evolutions and everything. And it's like... Okay, this game sucks. It's not for me, but I'm really enjoying watching her get all fired up. Yeah, so that might be. The I mean, that's we, we've talked several times about. It. it really is what we do around here. Our whole thing with this podcast is just uh, 
uh, talking about the stuff that gets us fired up, inviting people on who are yeah. fired up about geeky stuff and just letting them run wild. And it's just so gratifying whenever somebody is super into something and then you get to listen to them talk about it and just kind of go hog wild on it. It's, it's a really, it's one of the, the more rewarding aspects of fandom in general. Yeah, I get to look at my wife and go, am I like that with you? Do I do that? And she's like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you oh, do. okay. Let's see, what else? Uh, oh, I know I told you about this. I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast yet, but uh, uh, I came through, I was going through some drawers looking for uh, some cords uh, for some of my handhelds. And uh, I came upon some of the boxes for some of the handheld systems that I have. Uh, specifically, I came across... Uh, a box for one of the special edition 3DSs that I bought, and a box for the uh, Famicom edition Game Boy Micro that I bought. And uh, because I had these systems already in other forms, I left all of the paperwork in these two boxes, so it's like you know pretty complete except for the charger and the system. Yeah. Uh, when the charger was actually included, the 3DS didn't have one, but because um, they stopped selling them with the charger, which is ridiculous. But so I, I'm like, and I'm looking on on eBay because I'm I'm trying to scope out my next the Holy Grail, which I I, I still contend is going to be that hot pink Game Boy Micro, or the green one if I can ever find it. The European green Game Boy Micro is beautiful. But uh, so as I'm flipping around there, I notice that there's people who sell the boxes only the empty boxes, because there are collectors out there, not me, but there are collectors out there that are completionists and want to have. What they call CIB, yeah. complete in box. And so I'm like, I wonder if I could sell these boxes off, make a few bucks, and, and put that towards something else. Like I've been talking to you about picking up that Ambernix system that you were uh, yeah. uh, over the moon about. And so I got my eye on one. It's about 160 bucks, And so really I'm, is like, worth I, it. I'm wondering if I could make enough money to subsidize that. And so, on a whim, I put the 3DS, it's the NES Retro 3DS box up there, and I put, just a couple days ago, I put the Game Boy Micro Famicom Edition box up there. The 3DS one ended yesterday, I ended up with a, min. I put a minimum uh, requirement of 40, and so I sold it for 41, but I had a pretty active bidding war going on for it at one point. And then the 3DS one ends in like three and a half days, but within an hour of having it listed, it was already up to $52. Which is really butting us when you think about it. I mean, it's the box. I remember a couple years ago, actually it wasn't even a couple years ago now, it was maybe uh, a year and a half or so ago when when the new generation of systems came out. Which, uh, we have to remember, I mean, we're already in our third year of the release cycle of the PS5 and the Xbox Series X. There are still people that can't get their hands on those fucking things. Right. Um, they came out in late 2019, and here we are in, you know, or, or late 2020, excuse me, and here we are in early 2022. And they're still scarce, but uh, there were people that were selling off the boxes um, on, uh, on eBay after they got their systems in home. And those things were going for hundreds of dollars. Um, I got whether my or not box people too. I wonder if I should they... sell it. <clears throat> well, you know, I mean, I don't know if the market's gone down for those or not. The, the, the demand for the system certainly hasn't. But I, I was trying to think, what would somebody want with just a box if they didn't have the system? With the handhelds, I get it because of what you mentioned about the people want complete in-box handhelds. But um, I, I could only think there for two reasons. First of all, people are confused. They're, they're, maybe the listing isn't clear, or maybe it is clear, and they're just seeing what they want. And they're going after a, a, a box that they think is a complete system. Or 
they're trying to prank somebody for the holidays, and they're going to buy a PS5 box and then stick school books in it or something. I've seen some, <laughs> some prank videos on YouTube and TikTok like that where people are fucking with each other. Emotional damage! But, um, you know, it makes more sense. And I know, uh, for you at least, uh, being able to put those boxes up is a completely upfront and honest sort of a thing uh, because of collectors like yourself who, who are very completionist on their handheld systems. But uh, system boxes, I just, I, I, it's I crazy. get it where, where what you're doing is concerned. But uh, some of the time I just, I look at that and I think, do people not understand that this is an empty box? It's got that's, packing materials that's in That's been my whole thought process. I'm like, yeah. when it shopped at $52, these were sitting in my freaking drawer for years. And people, and I remember dust. you saying last week when we recorded the episode about handheld gaming that... Uh, some of these systems used to go for 50 bucks or 30 or 40 bucks used <laughs> if you go to the GameStop or something. And now they're paying that for the goddamn box. I, you for know, But good for them and good for you. If they know hey, what they're buying and you know yourself. My wife then... hates that I have all these lying around. They take up a lot of real estate if you think about it. And it's yeah, not do. something I'm doing anything with. So she's happy that I'm getting rid of them. I'm happy I'm making a few bucks and can subsidize something else that's kind of cool with it. I mean, it's it's nothing but pure win-win-win. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of starting a whole new hobby of just collecting handhelds in the box, selling off the box, and paying off half the handheld. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like a good idea it to could me. happen. Shit. But uh, yeah, that's that's a strange thing for me. But uh, yeah, I got some new shit I'm looking at. I'm looking at the uh, they got a twin Famicom up on uh, eBay that I got my eye on, and uh, the twin Famicom is. The Japanese version of the Nintendo bu uh, bundled together with uh, the disk system in one big solid unit. So it's nice. not separate units. And I've been wanting to get a disk system so I could play Doki Doki Panic. So I'm looking at uh, picking one of those up. I think it'd be like a. I think I got a one for 200 bucks with the box. And, and Doki uh, Doki just... Panic, which uh, which which geekdom cred uh, necessitates, it mandates that we mention that Doki Doki Panic is the uh, the Japanese version of Super Mario Two before it got yes. reskinned for the American market. So a lot of people kind of wondered why Super Mario 2 looked and played and felt so different than any other game in the Mario series. <laughs> well, it wasn't a Mario game. It wasn't a Mario game. Yeah, it got reskinned from a, uh, a popular Japanese platform game called Doki Doki Panic. And so being able to play that in the uh, sort of original form, I'm sure, has is, is got to be a big draw for that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And like I said, it's, it's coming in a box. Maybe I'll be able to flip the box for 50 bucks and, and pay off part of the console. So. <laughs> the way things are going, it sure seems that way. The secondary sales market is just strange. It's just so it's weird ridiculous. lately. It's hey, ridiculous, I know. But Good for you for making some cash, and good for the folks who are looking for those boxes for being able to complete their uh, their collections. It's just, you're, like Absolutely. you said, it's a win-win-win for everybody. So now, I've been. Uh, we talk about sometimes the things that just pop up into our minds, the things that chap our ass or things like that, grind our gears or whatever you want to call it. You know, that really grinds my gears. And uh, one of the things that I came up with, and I was looking through my timeline this morning, and I wasn't really going to talk about it until this morning when I got super irritated with it, but Facebook for me is just going so far downhill. And that being said, it's a necessity. We know it's a necessity. Yeah. It's it's the devil it's, it's you know. It's a necessary evil. But half of my timeline this morning was either suggested posts or uh, uh, sponsored posts. Yeah. Which are the ones that are selling you shit. 
And so it's like, hey, we think you might like this. And yeah, half the time, like we talked about before, half the time they're right. It's a video that I find amusing. And I hate yeah. that they're right, but they're right. And so yeah. I'll watch the video or whatnot. I'm not going to I'm not gonna like your site. I don't want you to have any more ammunition against me. But when I go to Facebook, I like to see what my friends are doing. I like to see Honestly. you know, the groups I'm in, the chats that I'm in. I like to see that. That's the and whole reason I, I still have it. I like less the fact that it's advertisement, advertisement. Oh, there's my friend. Advertisement, sponsored posts, you know, uh, yeah. suggested posts. It's like, it's like it's dry. It's seriously driving me to the point where I want to leave the platform, and I don't know that yeah. Zuckerberg cares or gives a shit. He's on this meta trip right now, and mm-hmm. I don't even know what the hell that's all about. But there's just not a viable alternative, though. You're right. It looks like Second Life. Do you remember Second Life? Yeah, I do. That I weird never played Second Life, but it was on my radar. Thing. And it just kind of got really bloated and grew beyond its original borders and turned into something it didn't originally start out as, and then it started shedding visitors like crazy. And I get mm-hmm. that, you know. But I'm, I'm with you on the Facebook thing. I mean, I, you and I both recently did a stint in Facebook jail. We actually had a live <laughs> episode planned, and we couldn't do it the way we wanted to because we both... Uh, I, I think I called out a Nazi, and you were uh, getting irritated—not irritated, but you were—you were giving your friends some shit over the uh, the fresh donuts thing during the fall harvest season at the apple orchard. And the oh yeah, place you were going to, and you <laughs> said, ah, "I'm gonna fucking kill you." And then uh, Zuckerberg's algorithm cops busted you. I just did another stint in Facebook jail not long ago because I said something in a group. I don't remember what it was. And somebody else just came out of the woodwork and said, hey, you look like a douchebag in your picture, apropos of nothing, even though I hadn't said anything inflammatory, even remotely controversial in my original post. And this person had a picture of a rat as their avatar. And I said, well, at least I got the balls to use a real picture of my actual human face. And this person came back and said, oh, I'm using a real picture too. And I said, oh, so you're a rat? I guess that tracks. And I got banned for a week for that. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) Fuck this noise. All I did was give somebody just a mild roast on Facebook because they came out of the woodwork and called me a douchebag, and I gave as good as I got on that one. And yeah, I, I know that I should be bigger and better than that and not sink to somebody else's level, but I thought it was funny, and I got a week's vacation for that. And ever since they, they lifted the ban on me, I just haven't felt like participating. I still doom scroll, like you said. I still look to see what my friends are up to, but I, I don't really post much. I, you know, I used to be a pretty active social media poster. I'd be putting up five, six, up to a dozen posts a day. Anything that entered my fucking stupid reptile brain, I would just throw it up there. But I just haven't felt like participating much lately. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that we're at the tail end of winter here and I live in a temperate climate and and I always get the seasonal affective disorder and I just, you know, I've been not bummed out, just run down lately. I don't have the fucking spoons. I don't have the energy to participate in in superfluous bullshit for right now. And maybe that has something to do with it, but I just, I'm kind of over it. And it's really sad. I still talk to a lot of my friends on Messenger uh, I still read my friends' posts to find out what they're up to and occasionally comment on stuff, but I just haven't felt like putting anything up for myself in quite a while. I mean, if you look back at my Facebook activity over the last couple of weeks, it's maybe a post every couple of days. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'll if I'll come back from that or not. I don't know if I even want to. It's just one of those things that I've sort of... It's just enervating more so than it is invigorating now. I get it. On a side thing, I think AliExpress is trying to get me to buy hair. <laughs> Why? Because you're because <laughs> I'm bald or something. They keep sending me these. AliExpress, the ad or the app, likes to send you little uh, push notifications that say, "Hey, yeah, we thought you might like this." 
And the last couple of weeks, it's been like the lace-in hair weave shit. It's like, fuck are you trying to say, AliExpress? We've known each other for almost 20 years, and I don't think, I, I don't, I've never seen you with hair. And I, not I don't, I'm not saying you look. I'm not saying you look weird with hair. You're a good-looking man, but I just I, I I don't know if I could ever. I can't even picture you with hair. You just you I have had... a very nicely shaped skull, and that and it works for you. <laughs> you know, I did that at random at one point. I wasn't going to, and then I'm like, well, I'll give it a try. And I shaved, and haven't been able to look back since then because nature decided at that point. Oh yeah, okay. Well, fuck him. He's gonna have no hair now. Here, I'll yeah. send you. I literally only have one real picture of me uh, with hair, and it's me at like 22, I think, or 23. And there, I send it to your phone. But it's 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 odd. I'm not sure I want to see it. It might fuck up my entire worldview. It might. Holy shit, dude. <laughs> you didn't just have hair. You had a lot of hair. You had cowardly lion hair. My and God, now, that's... And now my wow. daughter's got the exact same hair. Her hair is so curly. Yeah, she curly. does. And, she does, and yeah. She inherited that from me and her mother, so she is doubly screwed. You know, that guy right there, I've known you forever. I could <laughs> pass him on the street and not even clock him as you. Yeah, I mean, we, I just yeah, you and I both. You, you hit upon a look that works for you, and like I'm, I've had the exact same look. I mean, obviously I'm getting older and doughier the, by the day, but <laughs> I, I've sort of maintained the same. I've, you know, I've had... Long hair forever. I've had to cut it a couple of times for for uh, job interviews or whatever, but uh, I always tend to grow it back. And right now it's uh, three quarters of the way down my back again. I haven't had a haircut, a substantial haircut at least, since about 2017, 2018. So I've been growing it for about four years. And I've sort of been rocking the same facial hair arrangement for a good 20 years now since, well, actually longer than that, since about college or so. Um, just because I, I hit upon a look that uh, doesn't frighten children and that I can stand when I check myself out in the mirror in the morning. So sure I'm going to ride that bus till the wheels fall off. Well, no, I guess I'm really not sure because I don't really encounter many kids in the wild. That's by design. Here's something horrible. Here's, here's a feminist, and we'll probably edit this out maybe, but that's a picture of me without facial hair. Like at the beginning of COVID, I shaved all my facial hair off. Once again, I would I not know it. this guy was you. I hate it. I look like a fucking thumb. But what's 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 weird is like most of the time when somebody shaves they take years off their face. But you actually uh, you you subtract about fifteen years with the beard. Yeah. I'm not saying you look old in either picture, but I think we both uh, we we both are sort of in the lane we belong in, face wise. That's now, how I, I don't feel know, most I'm, days. But no, I thought that was funny. I, you were talking about being old and and broken and playing on stage. We did a show a couple weeks ago. Like I want to say it's like a month ago now. As of recording, and uh, I was, as we were doing the warm-up, I was on the drum riser, and the drum riser had a bunch of what they, the Apple boxes on the front, the removable, yeah. and move, you can move them around and put wherever you need to put wherever, and I didn't know it was modular. So I'm up on there talking to Jeremy, our drummer, and just fucking around, and then I go to jump off of it back onto the main stage, and the box shifts under my feet. Oh. And I so I took a tumble like a fucking header over head over heels and ah! and got back up, jumped up, laughed it off, and then got to the end of the show and I like just broken. I just could not move real well. And yeah, of course I came right, will right around you tear to a down. Degree. And then the, like for the next three weeks, I had this like big giant rug burn hole in my knee, which oh, was awful. Man. 
and uh, yeah. limping around like an old man. It's great. But like I felt great during the gig. The, the adrenaline will definitely sustain you through a gig. And and there were a couple of times when I just was like really getting lost in it and just having a great time up there and totally forgot that there was even anybody listening and just really went for it. But then after the show, you know, I go to break down and I go to bend over to pick up my guitar pedal and was like, oh, oh, there it is. Yeah, Found once it. the adrenaline of the performance subsides, then, oh, that's right. I just turned 47 fucking years old last week. There it is. <laughs> so, yeah, it shows up. I feel all 47 years of that all of a sudden all at once. Every day of it. So, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about is something I read in the news, and, and I kind of had an interesting... It hit me weird because they got this phenomenon where you're in line at, like, say, a Starbucks. This is, this took place at a Starbucks, so I'm going to use them for point of reference, where everyone in the drive through line was paying for the order behind them, right? Yeah. You've heard of that. Yep. Kind of similar to the suspended coffee thing, but different. And then they, I guess they had, like, a 26 or 27 or a really long streak of people doing this, right? And one guy broke the streak. And I want to know how you feel about this. Because, okay, so the reason that the guy broke the streak is he bought a coffee. Like a yeah. Frappuccino, which, what, like eight bucks, nine bucks total. Because we're talking exorbitant Starbucks prices. So eight or nine bucks, right? The car behind him that he would have been forced to pay for was like six or seven drinks deep. Oof. So it would have been like 40, 50 bucks at least, right? Yeah, at, at exorbitant and Starbucks prices, absolutely. He didn't want to pay it. And uh, you know, people are giving him shit, roasting him on the internet over the fact that he broke the streak. But at the same time, I would have too. Yeah, because I would have done I gotta the same tell thing. You, I'm, I, I appreciate the, the gesture of it all. I really dig behind the message of it all. And I get the playfulness of it. But I ain't paying those 60 bucks for a Frappuccino. I don't care what you do. No, no, I you know I'm with gold flakes and liquor, and I'm still not paying that much. I mean, you could get a bottle of Goldschlager. There's literally gold flakes and liquor for about forty bucks, and get yourself drunk. Uh, Right? You know, I'm with you on this one. I I appreciate altruism. I appreciate public generosity, um, but that the whole paying it backward thing that people do at Starbucks um, that became a trend. And that's cool for the people who are getting coffee, but from what I understand from people that actually work at Starbucks, it's a giant pain in the ass. they got to keep all these orders straight. You paid for this. Whose name is going on that? It's already kind of a clusterfuck the way they have their system set up at Starbucks. And a lot of the time, even when things are operating at normal capacity and things are, are, are going the way that they usually go, you'll still wind up with the wrong drink or they'll write the wrong name on it and call out the wrong name or they'll fuck up the drink somehow. And it just seems like it's already as confusing as it needs to be. So for something like that to happen, and it's fine, you know, like you said, if somebody's just getting a coffee or a couple of coffees, whatever, fine. But if somebody's got like a giant order for their entire department at work and all you're getting is a regular coffee, (laughs) then yeah, that seems a little bit of a, of an unrealistic and frankly unreasonable expectation to think that the person in front of you in line is going to pick up your entire fucking order. Yeah. uh, I'm sorry. The car behind you ordered six Frappuccinos, eight cake pops, three pieces of cake, Three of those orders of those egg bites and then a, uh, a water. <laughs> Their total is going to be $347.18. So you're going to pay that for them? Hell no. Hell no. You got me all kinds of fucked up. 
No, sir. And I don't actually try to... I try not to go to Starbucks anyway, because... I know we've talked about this before, but I'm a super taster, and I found that out a number of years ago. Uh, a doctor actually told me that, and uh, when she did, a lot of things made sense, because she explained... She told me a lot of stuff about myself that uh, turned out to be true in retrospect. Um, and Starbucks over-roasts their beans to an absurd degree, to the point where uh, super tasters and other people with, with sensitive palates kind of refer to them as Charbucks, because the coffee <laughs> always tastes burned. And um, my ex-wife used to actually work for uh, Caribou when we lived in the Twin Cities, and she at one point got a tour of their main roasting facility, and their main roaster, their main coffee dude, had come over from Starbucks. The reason he did that, took a pay cut to do it, is because he actually respected coffee beans. And he said that... Uh, Starbucks just tosses everything in a hopper, regardless of the origin of the bean, the size of the bean, whatever. Cranks it up to the maximum temperature and lets it go for however long they let it go for. But uh, Caribou sources their beans a lot more ethically, a lot more carefully, uh, a lot more sustainably. And then they experiment with small batches to find out optimum roasting times and temperatures. And that's why some of these kind of like off, not want to say off-brand, but some of the smaller chains like Caribou and Dutch Brothers and a lot of these other regional coffee chains... Uh, they just turn out a better product because they don't have to worry about mass producing like a, a standardized thing for the entire country all at once. They don't have the time or the resources. To, well, they have the resources, but they don't have the give a shit level because they have no incentive to do it. There's no. They're still going to sell billions of cups of coffee a day, even if they don't improve the product any because people have have it's gotten a known to quantity. It. Yeah. Yeah, there's a video on uh, Cheddar News, which is a YouTube channel that occasionally produces really interesting content. And they had a video that I watched about six or eight months ago, <clears throat> last year sometime, that was uh, how Americans got used to shitty coffee. And they stopped uh -huh. just short of actually name-checking Starbucks, but uh, they referred to certain nationwide popular coffee chains. And they talked about just the very, very substandard quality of the product, but how people have gotten used to it, and how for anybody that hasn't really had an artisanal cup of coffee actually made by somebody who gives a shit about the product, they may think that's what coffee's supposed to taste like, because it's, you know, it's like, well, why do Inuits eat whale blubbers? Because it's the only fucking thing on the Arctic barbecue, man. I mean, if you're served <laughs> something a whole bunch of times and you just get used to that, do you think that's what it's supposed to taste like? But then you'll have like an actual real cup of coffee made by somebody who cares, and it just kind of opens your eyes a little bit. Yeah. But... Maybe that's well, just that's me. Said, I like caribou. I think caribou is a delicious cup of coffee, honestly. Very yeah. smooth, very good. And I know that uh, Dutch Bros is kind of a thing up by you in the PNW, and I've been up there oh, a couple yeah. of times. Uh, I've been to uh, your old hometown of Colorado Springs where they exist. I, I visited friends in Portland from our old stomping grounds at PJ. And uh, I've been through Dutch Bros a couple of times, and that, uh, along with caribou, is probably the best chain cup of coffee that I've ever had. Uh, they just do a really nice job. But Starbucks, I, I kind of avoid them. I don't go there if I can help it. Like if it's a, I'll drink the, the cold drinks, but town. yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But anyway, not the thrust of the conversation. Just something I thought was interesting. I would break that streak as well. I just, I'm not here to pay for everyone's coffee. I'm not here to pay for an exorbitant order. Half the time I go through a drive-through, I barely got enough to pay for myself. So nope. There you go. You know, lucky streak being what it is. You can call me an asshole because it ain't happening, bro. Not happening. But, uh, as always, we welcome your feedback. I'd like to know where you guys weigh in on this. Uh, you can always join the conversation with us. You can hit us up on uh, the ever-dreaded Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fandom. You can send us a good old-fashioned email at feelyourfandom at gmail.com. 
or you can always hit us up at the backup email at fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. That's where you want to send your show ideas, your guest suggestions, and of course your pie recipes. We always love those. And if you want to find us on Instagram, we're at, at @fuelyourfandom, or on Twitter at, at @fuel underscore your. And we're always taking donations for the Fuel the Future charity to get comics into the hands of underprivileged kids. And we're That's on Venmo, right. Cash App, and PayPal at, at Fuel Your Fandom. We made it nice and easy. And however you find us, we're glad you find us and put you in your ear holes. But we are available on all the fine syndication platforms like iHeartRadio and, for the time being at least, Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Audible. And, of course, if you're impatient like I can be, the latest and greatest episode always goes up at fuelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com. And my boy Saint uploads those things every Friday morning, so you're always free to check those out there if you don't want to wait for them to drop on your podcast platforms. However you get this into your holes, we're glad you get us into your holes, and we're always flattered when folks come back and listen. So thank you for your patronage. Absolutely. And like I said... Uh, jump into the conversation. Let us know what would you do. Would you break the streak? Would you shell out the extra bucks to buy a a fifty dollar order if you just had one coffee? We want to know where you stand, because I could see both sides of it. But the cheapskate in me says hell now. Nah. So yeah, more like the realist. I don't know. Yeah, it's pragmatism, really. I mean, I I, I understand altruism. I understand public uh, generosity, but I just I can't see paying for somebody's massive coffee order if all I wanted was a. Regular old cup of black. See, now that, that I can see that too because, I mean, I'll pay for like a suspended coffee if you ask me. It's like, yeah. you know, hey, uh, throw this in the in the hopper or if someone can't afford a cup, you know, hook yeah. them up. If there's someone down on their luck and they need a cup, hook them up. I'm good with that. But one cup of coffee extra is a, certainly a far cry different from 50, 60 bucks. So, I mean, let us know where you stand on that. Now, that being said... Not the rest of the conversation. We like to have fun, though. So, what I actually really wanted to get into was, and I was talking to Jim about this uh, offline, but uh, we used to talk about how uh, with television and movies, television have more of a time frame to uh, address a story, whereas the term cinematic comes from being in the movies, where you have this the high drama, the high suspense, the high action that comes along with being in the cinemas. And we talked about that uh, previously in regards to Star Trek versus Star Wars. You know, which series has more fleshed out characters and whatnot. I always said that uh, Star Wars I loved and Star Trek had more time to develop. You have more character development. You got more story development. You get more time for arcs. And yeah, I mean, it's just it's just the way it's been. And so there was always well, traditionally Star Wars was a cinematic series. And Star Trek was a television series, even though right, there's been quite right. a bit of crossover in the last couple of years. But that's where they started. So, yeah. Right. And so then we end up with uh, where we're at now. And of course, now things are a bit different. We have things like the MCU, which has flourished uh, for the last 12 plus years in the cinemas. Um, now being fleshed out in a really strong and unique way. Uh, keeping, of course, aside Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And, and Agent Carter and all these things that are not may or may not have any kind of canon quality to them. The Netflix shows, which don't really count, but kind of count. And uh, we're left with, up till recently, uh, MCU's domain, the dominant force of the MCU was in the theaters. Yep. But now they've expanded uh, WandaVision, Falcon and Winter Soldier, Loki, Hawkeye. All these shows have given... The small screen treatment, the ability to stretch a story out into like eight hours, ten hours, uh, 
and really develop these storylines and characters and plot points just a bit more, they're kind of benefiting from the upside of the theater and the upside of television and creating yeah. this, this media juggernaut. And that's been happening with Star Wars as well. I've said for years that Star Wars is, is a cinema kind of thing. Uh, you got the extended universe in the books and everything, but that was never really canon. You know what I mean? Right. And the recently got canon... sincerely, ever since uh, Disney bought uh, Lucasfilm, uh, they, they straight out demoted all of the extended yeah. universe stuff to, to saying, hey, legends, these are fanciful yeah. stories. These are legends. These are, you know, they're not considered canon. And uh, a lot of people were really upset about that because, you know, they, myself, they hoped, one of them. Yeah. Yeah. They'd really hoped to see characters like um, like Mara Jade Skywalker eventually show up in the films because she was part of the story in the extended universe books. Right. Uh, you really hope to see uh, oh, Grand gosh, Admiral Thrawn. Ad, Ad, yeah, Admiral Thrawn. He was a huge uh, antagonist in the books, and the, the, you know the the promise of someday we'll get more Star Wars movies. They wanted to see these stories told on the big screen, but uh, alas, tis not to be. But we do wind up getting things like The Mandalorian. We're getting things like Book of Boba Fett. We're getting, um, I guess, an Ashoka Tano series now. Um, mm-hmm. So that's pretty Obi-Wan great. Obi-Wan Kenobi um, comes out in this month, too. Yeah. And that, uh, speaking of development, hell, that thing has been kicked around for years. That was supposed to be it the used first to be a movie. Star Wars series. Yeah. It was, like was going to be a movie. But, I, you know, I think the um, the idea of, of things transitioning a little bit, of, of people starting to understand... There are two, I think, major forces that that have contributed to TV. Uh, well, ostensibly TV, small screen. We'll say small screen because when you say TV, you think traditional broadcast stuff or cable, but right. uh, streaming. Um, the small screen stuff kind of being a driving narrative force, and that's two things really. I think it was Netflix, and I think it was Disney, uh, because Netflix. There were always, you know, original series on cable. I remember back as a kid when we had HBO when I was uh, in junior high. There were shows like. Uh, oh gosh, what was the uh, Dream On? Dream I was on, on yeah. an HBO series, and there was you watch uh, that always uh, hoping to catch a boob. Yeah, you know you're in junior high, you just want to you know see some pretty <laughs> ladies on TV, <clears throat> and HBO was good for that. Still is once in a while, but um, really, the the sort of small screen has become, if not the preferred avenue for narrative storytelling, at least a a force that rivals cinema, because I mean when. Streaming started to happen when Netflix started to become a real force and they started producing original programming and picking up theatrical releases to stream for home. Um, a weird thing happened to the movies. And I listened to a couple of screenwriting podcasts. Notably, um, there's a screenplay podcast called Script Notes with uh, Craig Mazin and John August, both of whom are very. Which I still need to pick up. Yeah, they're, they're very seasoned screenwriters. They've, they've both written movies you've seen. And uh, they have this, this podcast, and it's incredibly well listened to. It's got a great audience. But they really break down not just uh, aspects of screenwriting, but also aspects of the business. And they talk quite a bit about how when streaming came along, you'll notice the only things you really see hitting theater screens anymore are giant blockbuster adventure movies like the aforementioned Uncharted film and a lot of the MCU stuff, or really small, cheap, easy to produce with a built-in audience kind of horror films. Like, um, oh gosh, what's the uh, Paranormal Activity or A Quiet Place or, or those, those kind of things. You I don't really, really like see, but it used to be this whole mushy middle. Yeah, there's a great movies and uh, real star power behind them with Emily Blunt and John Krasinski in the lead roles and being the creative force behind it. But you don't see really these these uh, the, the movies that I wanted to write when I first got interested in screenwriting 
were these sort of mid-tier comedies. The, the comedies you could make for a million and a half, or a, a 150 million bucks or something, and they'd make 300 or 400 million dollars and get a nice return on investment. Yeah. Um, they were just, you know, popcorn munching stuff. Uh, the last couple of years, those things have really disappeared and they've really gone to streaming for the most part. Um, you don't really see movies like Horrible Bosses or The Hangover or Identity Thief or uh, the last round of movies that really came out that were like that in the theaters. There was a movie called um, The House, I think it was called, with Amy Poehler and Will Ferrell where they opened up a casino in their house to pay for their daughter's college and that flopped because those sort of mid-tier comedies... There's another one that's coming out that I have seen trailers for that's got uh, Channing Tatum and uh, Sandra Bullock in it that looks like a kind of a fun comedic romp. And I just I remember looking at the trailers for that thinking, this is the kind of movie that usually would go to streaming now, but it's getting a theatrical release. But really, the the uh, prominence of things like Disney Plus and Netflix and even Hulu, uh, with the Pam and Tommy series that's out now, you're seeing a lot of creators that used to do things for cinema. And they're moving to the streaming space because they're able to stretch their legs a little bit and tell mm-hmm. a story over six, eight, or ten episodes that they couldn't necessarily tell in, in an hour and a half or two hours on the screen. And you and I both know from having read many screenwriting books and kind of having internalized the screenwriting process that necessarily movies have to be, to a degree, somewhat formulaic. They have to follow a given blueprint or they just really have no chance of getting made. It's it's the classic Joseph Campbell hero's journey thing. Uh, yeah, got broken down in granular detail. And, yeah, yeah in, in a book called Save the Cat by a guy named Blake Snyder that I read a number of years ago. So movies, to a certain extent, are not necessarily predictable because the settings change, the characters change, the dialogue changes, uh, the story itself changes, but they are somewhat formulaic. But in f- television, you can really stretch a little bit and you can have peaks and valleys and you can have things that happen, ebb and flow of a story, and that's why you have people like uh, Craig Mazin, who I talked about before, who was the screenwriter on things like a couple of Hangover movies and Identity Thief and and a couple of these films, and then he moved to Cable, and he wrote and show-ran the Chernobyl series on HBO and got major kudos for that. I mean, if you've seen the Chernobyl series, how heavy and serious and, and a docudrama-y it was, mm-hmm. and then realized that the same guy wrote that that wrote the second and third Hangover movies... And also superhero movie, the spoof movie with Drake Bell and uh, Leslie Nielsen. Uh, it's night and day. That was bad. Yeah. He wrote and directed that. And he wrote <laughs> and show ran the Chernobyl series. And it's like he won a bunch of Emmys and BAFTAs and a bunch of great awards for that. And he deserved it. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. But he's also working on the upcoming uh, The Last of Us series. It's also going to be for HBO. Which also stands to be another comic book property, or excuse me, video game property that's not total dog shit because Craig is a gamer. Um, but nevertheless, we've got these these sort of theatrical creators that are moving into the television slash streaming space because they just have more flexibility. And they talk right. about this in the podcast, the Script Notes podcast, a couple of times where in film, the screenwriter uh, can be undermined constantly. You can get notes from the studio, the director can make changes, the stars can improv stuff on set. But in television, as it's always been, the showrunner is kind of a micro-god. Uh, and they get to kind of run their domain the way they see fit. They are the ultimate authority. They're the one that actually hires the directors that handle and helm each episode. So there's a lot more freedom there and a lot more creative uh, juice, which is why I think a lot of these folks are kind of moving to that space. But you also have just more space and more time to tell your story. And this right. appeals to a lot of those people. It takes a longer time to, to, to get that stuff set up. I mean, Craig's been working on this series. I've been listening to the podcast he does. He's been in and out of Calgary where they're shooting this thing for eight or ten months now. Usually you can knock on a movie in two to three months. TV, obviously, it's you're talking eight to ten hours versus, uh, you know, two, uh, hour and a half. 
Um, but it just takes longer, but the rewards are greater. Maybe not financial rewards, but the creative rewards, which a lot of these people got into these fields to begin with because of that. They're just you, you get more freedom, and uh, you're able to tell your story in a way that you want to versus the constraints of time and storytelling expectation. Right, and look at very successful projects right now. Uh, one really uh, uh, key note right now, it just ended the first season with, a, with massive fanfare. The largest original streaming show on HBO the the largest turnout to date was for the finale of Peacemaker and Peacemaker was a property born out of The Suicide Squad directed by James Gunn James yeah. Gunn turned around got to uh, write direct and show run this television show this uh, I want to say seven episode television show on HBO I think it was Max eight Seven or eight, I don't know. Was it eight? Hang on, I think it was eight, thing. because I, I thought it was nine, but I remember when the eighth episode ended, I thought, that seems like kind of a button on the story, but I thought there was a ninth episode, but there uh, there was not, there was eight. But, yeah. I mean, Oh, yeah, was, you just finished watching thing. that, didn't you? Yeah, it's eight. Yeah, a couple of days ago. Yeah, it's, yeah we finished it's, watching Peacemaker. It's absolutely fantastic. I never I thought it. I would say this about, uh, about Peacemaker, of all things, but literally one of the best shows on television at the time that it was airing. I cherish peace with all my heart. I don't care how many men, women, and children I need to kill to get it. Absolutely. I mean... Well-written, well-fleshed-out characters who experience growth arcs along the board. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Full of twists and turns and unexpected plot points, and uh, they brought back several characters from the Suicide Squad film. And the fact that it was uh, James Gunn that wrote and directed this... I remember reading, because after the series is over, I, I do what I usually do. I do a deep dive onto uh, media surrounding the show, and I sort of like look up trivia and behind-the-scenes stuff to find out kind of how it all came together. And uh, James Gunn, in between, I want to say, The Suicide Squad and working on Guardians of the Galaxy 3, uh, right, at, right when COVID was starting to get real bad, he wrote this series, and I think I remember reading in a couple of different articles from credible sources, he wrote the entire Peacemaker series in a week. Because he just had downtime. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't show. It's actually, it took him longer to write than it took to air this thing. Um, or it took it, it was sorry, excuse great. me. It took it longer to air than it took him to write it. But um, yeah, it was great. And and we, we watched the whole thing here and it was, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And you took this sort of like secondary character from an ensemble piece. And actually, a kind of a minor character in the DC universe. Not even Very DCEU, but the DC universe. He actually was uh, brought over from Charlton Comics in the 50s, I think, in the Silver Age. um, Because uh, DC bought all of the Charlton uh, Comics characters, and Peacemaker was one of those, and they brought him over. And his, uh, it's interesting when you read the history of the character, because I did so after the Suicide Squad, because I, I, he was on my radar, but he was, again, kind of one of these minor secondary characters that was literally disposable, which is why he got tossed at the Suicide Squad. Um, but I found it interesting to kind of read up on the history of the character and, and uh, kind of his comic book background, because I hadn't ever read any of his comics, because they were always pretty obscure, even when he got moved over to D.C., but nonetheless, I mean, he's, he's a fascinating character, and that whole, I will achieve peace no matter how many women, men, or children I have to kill to get it, is pretty much a direct <laughs> quote from the original 50, not kill, but but uh, he, achieving peace by any means necessary. He's been a central part of this character for about 70 years. So it's interesting to see it. Um, and it was a really, really fun series, and I think uh, it, it really is kind of a shot over the bow of Marvel a little bit, because Marvel... 
as you mentioned before, kind of has had a somewhat scattered small screen universe with the the Netflix stuff being uh, somewhat well regarded. I mean, they were those hit or miss. Iron Fist was garbage, um, but the Jessica Jones series was pretty good. Luke Cage was fantastic. Mike Coulter owned that role. Oh, yeah. um, and you know Charlie Cox is so popular as Daredevil, he's coming back. That's been confirmed. Uh, he's already back. If you really, I've seen uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home, and at this point, if you're a carbon-based life form in the universe, you have seen it at least a couple of times. How did you just do that? I'm a really good lawyer. But, You've seen the box yeah, office I think, fake. You've seen it. Yeah, you contributed to it. So it really is kind of, I think, a shot across the bow because this series. Uh, DC is, uh, is is a Time Warner company, and so is HBO. And HBO's always kind of had the reputation of putting edgier stuff on their original programming, whether it's Dream On, like you said, you might catch a booby back in the day, or whether it's Game of Thrones, which is just full of sex and violence. Um, <clears throat> so Peacemaker, even as a comic book property that ostensibly, I mean, a lot of the sort of uh, boomer crowd thinks, oh, comics are for kids, not really anymore. Uh, because if you've nope. seen the Peacemaker series, <laughs> it's just, you know, every... every Wall to wall filth. Um, just wall to wall filth. Every every show had a content warning beforehand that said, "Hey, this ain't really for kids. Uh, this is a TVMA property. There's going to be language. There could be nudity. There's going to be a lot of violence. There's going to be certain situations that are perhaps objectionable if you're a parent and don't want your kids watching this." So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of a, uh, a no holds barred. Here's the kind of storytelling we can do with a comic book property on the small screen when there's no governor on the engine, and it really worked. Uh, I don't think Marvel's going to be able to necessarily match that. Because, I don't think they uh, should. They, well, I don't think they should either. They're doing their own thing. I mean, Marvel, they are ostensibly a Disney company now, and whereas you might get Benedict Cumberbatch saying, I need you to Scooby-Doo this shit, that's about as edgy as they're going to get on either the big or the small screen. And that's fine for them. It works for them. Marvel is maybe... They're doing a great thing with... Because uh, they kind of brought the idea of TV into the movies and movies into TV. It's really cross-pollinated now. But Marvel was, if not the first, the best company, the best universe to really create episodic movies. We used to have things like, you know, the Star Trek series or uh, James Bond or certain movies that were certain editions of a specific story being like told a series, about a character. Yeah. But they could be watched independently of each other, and they could stand alone on their own. Uh, Marvel created... I don't think they created it. Again, I'm, I'm not going to go that far necessarily, but they perfected it, certainly, episodic movie making, where you really have to kind of be there for every edition of it if you want to get the entire story. And that's really ripped directly from their comic book philosophy, which has always been any character can show up in anybody else's book at any time because we're all in the same universe here. So they took that comic book philosophy of, you know, if you want to get the whole story, you got to buy all the books in a certain series, and sometimes they cross titles, uh, and they brought that idea to the big screen, and it has paid off for them creatively and financially in a major way. So there's a lot of crossover now, um, and then yeah, there and is both the DCEU and the MCU. DCEU, uh, MCU, Star Wars is doing it, Star yeah. Trek's doing it to a lesser extent, Uh I think everyone's really benefiting from the ability to tell these stories in a much more broad fashion rather Unified. than trying to cramp. I mean, even looking at something like Dune. Dune yeah. always felt like the original Dune, and we're going to have a longer conversation about Dune. Uh, yeah. Dune uh, really felt like it should have been stretched out. And now we've got, of course, the new Dune being split into two movies for the first story, so that makes a lot more sense. Whereas mm -hmm. you have 
Oh, there's there's definitely properties that did it worse, uh, which and I'm looking at you, Peter Jackson. Your Lord of the Rings yeah. movies were fantastic, well paced masterpieces. Your Agreed. Hobbit franchise, however, did oh, not need boy. to be three movies long. I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. And they did not need to bring characters from the Lord of the Rings over into the Hobbit. Legolas no. never showed up in the Hobbit, but he showed up in the movies. You know, the the Lord of the Rings was a, a, a series of books, so it made sense it was a series of movies. But to stretch out the Hobbit into three movies just wasn't necessary. Just just a little much. And so uh, we're seeing a lot more freedom with these creators. And then, like we talked about, you're seeing movie directors come and do television shows like James yeah. Gunn. You also see television actors getting a chance to stretch the legs in movies. But you mm-hmm. also see these notorious movie actors being able to come through and do these television series and and open themselves up to a much more broader audience who may not be as familiar with their body of work and, and being able to really develop into a character, stretch their legs into a character, whereas two hours might not have been enough time to do so. Right. So you're really getting to see the best of these actors as well. And as we so, speak, the moratorium on spoilers is enough for Peacemaker, but by the time this hits the airwaves, it probably will be. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm just going to uh, to say that there were some moments in Peacemaker um, that were, were very surprising and very welcome as they sort of dovetail with the larger DCEU, um, which was a really welcome thing to see, because at the risk of saying they're kind of taking a page out of Marvel's book, they kind of are, but it works just as well when they do it, because regardless of how scattershot you sort of feel, and I, I sort of have made this argument before, that I think I enjoy both the DCEU and the Marvel movies, but I kind of enjoy the Marvel movies on a different level because they are a unified universe, of course, right. apart from things like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter and the Netflix series, which have been demoted as non-canon. We nonetheless have a very unified universe, especially now that Disney's brought everything, plus the Fox stuff, all under the same umbrella and can kind of use the larger universe and if you've seen the doctor strange uh, multiverse of madness trailer <clears throat> which about you should have times. by now yeah oh my god there th- there are some definite things going on in that trailer that seem to indicate that we're going to get a much more expanded mcu in this next phase but nonetheless dc has kind of had a little more scattershot of a um less consistent in their universe because we, we've got a different actor we got grant gustin and ezra miller both playing the flash um, we've got, um, Superman in the Supergirl series, who is not Henry Cavill. Um, you know, Ben Affleck has, has sort of like, uh, retired the cowl, and now he's, we got Robert Pattinson in a movie that has nothing to do with the Justice League. Um, you know, and, and Joker <clears throat> took place in, in, in the 70s, ostensibly, in New York, so they're not as consistent. Um, they, they, they sort of tell more independent, discrete stories about their characters, but... They, they did kind of, there were some moments in Peacemaker that indicated that they're going to start to maybe be a little bit more um, unified with their universe. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, I hope it works out for them. Um, DC has traditionally had a harder time kind of hanging on to stars. Like I said, you know, we've, we were sort of in the uh, Venn diagram crossover between Robert Pattinson and Ben Affleck being Batman. So that's inconvenient. And, and Henry Cavill is sort of like, he just got cast as the as the new Highlander. Plus, he's doing uh, The Witcher, and he's got all this shit going on. He may or may not God. ever put that that big red S back on his chest again. We don't know. Um, he very famously refused to show up for 
the final scene in uh, Shazam, which Superman did appear in. Again, spoiler warning, that's been out for a couple years now, and you should have seen it by now. And the Shazam sequel is coming out, but um, they've had a little bit less uh, of an ability to be able to to keep their people and have them show up across properties. And if you've seen Peacemaker, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, um, there was a moment in Peacemaker that was pretty awesome, but could have been a little more awesome had they been able to to kind of pull in a couple of extra people. That so said, that's they did kind manage of to pull something really cool <clears throat> off. And, and they did. They did, and I enjoyed oh, oh. that very much. You're late, you fucking dickheads. Go fuck another fish, asshole. I'm so fucking sick of that rumor. It's not a rumor. Fuck you, Barry. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But um, so yeah, uh, there's they've got different approaches to storytelling. But but uh, I think Peacemaker, like you said, it was a huge show for HBO. It was really well done. You've got a massive creative force that's worked in both DCEU and MCU and James Gunn, writing, directing, and and really show running that entire series, and that showed. Um, you know, it really was a, well, a, a really good property. And over on Book of Boba Fett, you were you had the showrunner being and and one of the directors of the show being Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, you know mm-hmm. you have all the work being done by John Favreau over there, uh, yep. who's up till recently mostly film actor, film director. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard, who is a film director, yeah. film actor, uh, has been cutting her teeth on some of the Mandalorian and Boba Fett stuff and doing a fantastic job. And so, and we need we're getting, we need more female directors. We really do. Yeah, absolutely. Her episode of Book of Boba Fett was fucking Chef's Kiss, man. It was great. Now you could call it what you want. You could say it's Mandalorian season three intro, whatever you want to call it. But it was fucking gorgeous, and uh, we'll we'll probably have a bit more of a uh, a breakdown of the Book of Boba Fett. Versus the Mandalorian. She really she took after her else. dad on that one. I mean, her dad, uh, you know, Ron Howard, obviously was uh, both uh, famously Opie in the Andy Griffith series, and he was on Happy Days. He started his career as an actor, and then moved behind the camera. And these days, he's best known for for being a director. <clears throat> and I don't know if she's planning to make that uh, make that change, but she certainly comes from a, uh, a family that that's equally comfortable and equally skilled on both sides of the camera. So fantastic yeah. for her, and I hope to see more from her in the future. She did a great job, and. And um, I, I kind of am here for it. Now, we hear, we're going to have another episode. We're talking with a friend of mine, Arthur, where we talk about this split between MCU-type movies and Star Wars movies and these episodic franchise movies versus um, quote-unquote regular cinema uh, and how there's these massive directors like Francis Ford Coppola and whatnot out there. And Roland Emmerich was out there doing it lately, too, and just talking mad trash about... Uh, like MCU movies and and shit like that, talking about how that's not real movie making and uh, you know that's all anyone wants to see anymore. Poo, boo hoo, pity me. And and Scorsese said the same thing. Scorsese was right up there with it too. Yep. But uh, I don't know. I feel I I'm kind of in the camp where I feel like everybody gets to do kind of their own thing. Water's yeah. going to seek its own level. If people want to see the latest Scorsese flick, they're going to go out and see it. If I yeah. want to go see whatever it is uh, Roland Emmerich is doing, I'm going to go see it, regardless of the format. I don't like to see the infighting. And like I no. said, we're going to have a bit more of a, a lengthier conversation about that. But I think, for the most part, all we've done is benefit in quality and in star power and 
storytelling what we get from our TV these days because we have much more experienced hands going at it. We have much more experienced actors going at it. We get to see a much more nuanced take on these characters than we possibly would see in, like, the Suicide Squad. We got a lot more out of John Cena's character, the Peacemaker, out of the TV show than we ever did on the screen on Suicide Squad, which is great because he was great in both, but... And we can bitch as much as we want to about how it's just as expensive now to subscribe to all the streaming services as it used to be to be on cable and cord cutting. The, the, there's no cost benefit anymore. But yeah, we do. the quality of the programming, I mean, cable is 5,000 channels and nothing on. You get garbage like Duck Agreed. Dynasty and all these dating reality shows and all this other shit. And again, if you enjoy that stuff, cool. It's not for me, but it's cheap to produce and there's a lot of it. And you've got, uh, I think it's, I lament things like A&E, which used to be arts and entertainment. Now they got like, we're going to go out and shoot us some hogs. And that's fine if you want to be into that. But, you know, TLC, the learning channel, has just pretty much got all like, uh, you know, we've got some little people in a family. And that's fascinating and cool, but it's just, it's not what it used to be. So I think a lot of the good programming, a lot of the quality programming, you're paying the same amount, if not slightly more, or maybe even a little less. It's comparable. But you're getting better programming on streaming because they're, they they have an incentive to kind of outcompete each other and to produce this original stuff. And sort of like what you were talking about before, it kind of must be said that I think the, and this is maybe a, a weird argument to make, but I think it'll make sense if I can articulate it properly. But the success of Peacemaker being a very no-holds-barred sort of pedal-to-the-floor kind of a show with all kinds of violence and language and, and, and situations of, of an adult nature that is not for a younger audience, I think the template for that was sort of set by the Harley Quinn animated series, which is on HBO Max, which is also, I'm working my way through that, and it's fucking fantastic. They don't really hold uh, anything back from the first episode on. Uh, you've got the Joker and Harley on a boat, and they're, uh, they're, they're robbing a boat of all these sort of wealthy, mucky-muck, uh, traditional, stereotypical billionaire assholes with this giant stack of cash on a boat, all laughing at the pores. And these two show up Robin Hood-style and go to steal all the money. And immediately, you've got this close-up of Harley breaking some guy's leg open with a bat, and he's got a compound fracture sticking out of his leg. And they're both just dropping profanity at each other like crazy from the jump. This show lets you know, hey, it's animated, and it's comic book characters, but this is absolutely not for kids. I can't spend my whole life just bashing goons. Gotham Knights hear the name Harley Quinn. I want him to piss themselves. I want a taste of that. You want a taste of piss? No, you know what I've meant. And the fact that that's done so well, I think, sort of contributed to the idea that, hey, we can do this with the uh, with other characters we have, other maybe even Suicide or the Suicide Squad related characters that we have. So we'll do a Peacemaker series and we'll make it very grown up. And uh, I think that they, they they've sort of carved out a niche for themselves that is analogous to but distinctive from Marvel in that way. And I applaud them for it. I think they're doing a fantastic job with it. Uh, I want to see them do more of it. I enjoyed Peacemaker thoroughly. Um, partially because of the character, because he was so well-established and so consistent. And he did grow, but he is the same character. He didn't change from uh, from the Suicide Squad. Right. It's the same guy, the same actor, the same outfit. Um, and also because they brought back so many of the same actors. Uh, Jennifer Holland as Harcourt was fantastic. Um, Steve Agee as John Economos was great. Uh, really loved seeing uh, Danielle Brooks pop up. Loved her on Orange is the New Black. And seeing her pop up here as Amanda Waller's daughter. Fantastic. Viola Davis showed up a couple of times. Um, it's just really, really well done. And uh, John Cena. We've talked before about John Cena. And his name is John Cena! Um, 
he's just great. He's a great guy. He's a great actor. He did a fantastic job with this character and this role. He really sold it. Um, there were some great moments in there on both ends of the sort of emotional spectrum and everywhere in between. And uh, I just really just enjoyed this series, and I really want to see more from uh, from this team. Yeah, so, I mean, I, like I said, I think we're getting a lot more high-quality content uh, because of this crossover. I think we're definitely seeing more talent in the acting pool, the writing pool, the directing pool, show running. I fear we're getting, I feel like we're getting a much more nuanced storytelling uh, from my Star Wars shows that I love. Because they've been talking yep. about for a long time, they've been talking about, oh, maybe the future of Star Wars is on the small screen and not the big screen. I think that there's a certain truth to that. Uh, we've had the success of Rebels, we've had the success of Clone Wars, we've had, yeah. you know, Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, and we got Ashoka coming up, we got Obi Wan coming up. We get this ability to tell these wide-ranging stories in this universe that we love. And as long as they're done with care, like Jon Favreau and, and Dave Filoni are doing, I feel like we're going to continue to get that nuanced storytelling that makes it yeah. such a much more rich and enhanced and vibrant universe. It um, is more focused. They can dig deeper into those things. If you're watching Star Wars on the big screen, you're going to expect to see giant sweeping set pieces. You're going to expect to see huge battles. You're going to expect to see... You know, huge sets. You've got Luke Skywalker and the Emperor and Darth Vader standing on the bridge of the, of the deck of the new Death Star. You're not necessarily going to get that in, in television, but you are going to get more focused character stories with smaller casts, with with a, a sort of more more um, consistent narrative, um, and you're going to have the ability to like to like we said earlier to be able to tell a story over eight or ten hours and be able to really stretch and dig into things rather than having to follow a formulaic blueprint for getting something out in an hour and a half or two hours it's just a lot more freedom a lot more intensity a lot more ability to really dig into these characters and tell their stories in a way that you just can't when you have limited time and and you're restricted uh, sort of like handcuffed by by what people expect from a movie right so let us know what you think uh do you think that we're getting better quality television and streaming television because of this uh do you think it's hindering uh the movie theaters i mean we really want to kind of know what your what your thought process is on this. And uh, as always, as we said, you can reach us at uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fuelyourfandom. You can always send us a good old-fashioned email at fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. FYF talentbooking at gmail.com is the backup email address. You can hit us up on Twitter at fuel underscore your and Instagram at, at fuelyourfandom. And, of course, you can find us on all your podcast platforms and if you want to toss us a couple bucks for the kids you can do that at paypal venmo and cash app at at fuel your fandom and we appreciate your patronage we appreciate your donations we appreciate you listening and we just appreciate you uh coming back and spending some time with us every week absolutely we do uh we, we like to rant but we like to uh, have fun with it and keep it light too so like i said give us an email hit us up on facebook join the conversation it's all good fun and uh, we are well underway with our season four. Uh, if you have any ideas for episodes or guests or maybe yourself, like he said, hit us up in one of our email addresses. We'd be more than happy to discuss setting up a show with you. But other than that, we want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom podcast. And please do remember that everything is fandom and fandom is everything. Take care. Oh,
Yeah.